Theology of the Body Institute. This is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Welcome to this episode of Ask Christopher West. I'm Wendy West. And I'm Christopher West, her husband. (laughs) We're so happy to be here with you and answer your questions that we're grateful to have received. Before I ask one of your questions, I want to ask a question of my own. Christopher, can you tell us something unusual about yourself that listeners might not guess about you? Something unusual about me? Yeah. Well, maybe today this isn't so unusual, but I have not been to a barber since 1987. Oh, my word. Which means, doesn't mean I have super long hair, as everybody knows. Well, you can tell everybody what it means. Yeah, well, you are an expert at cutting your own hair with the clippers. I cut my own hair. I've been cutting my own hair for over 30 years. Yeah. (laughs) That's a little weird. I I feel a little exposed now. Oh, shoot. I feel like... (laughs) Not sure you wanted to tell yeah, everyone I feel, that, I huh? feel like the whole world is suddenly in my bathroom with me and my clippers. <laughs> and a handheld mirror to get the and back. Hand, yes. <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. yeah, so I have this rig, as my wife well knows, I have this rig where I, I hold one mirror out in front of me and I look at the back to get the, the neckline and all yep. this. So yeah, I, I actually, I enjoy cutting my own hair. Yeah. And you've cut our kids' hair. Yeah, cut boys. the kids' hair. And I, ha- I, gosh, how much money have I saved in yeah. 30 years? A lot. And and it's just convenient. You can do it when you're, yep. you have the inspiration. No appointment required. Exactly. That's great. That is unusual about me. It is. And now the world knows. <laughs> Thanks for telling us that secret. I do feel a little exposed. Okay, moving right <laughs> along. Well, here, I'm going to... Moving <laughs> along from the bathroom habits of Christopher West. <laughs> Thank you. I have a question from a listener um, who is anonymous who asks, if our ultimate goal is to be able to look at one another without any sense of sin or lust, why is there such an emphasis on dressing modestly? Shouldn't we be focused on developing the ability to see one another as people rather than objects? So let me offer a thought here first of all that our ultimate goal is not to see one another, although that will be a fruit Mm-hmm. of the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to see God face to face. And seeing God face to face will give us his ability to see one another. And seeing one another rightly will produce what theologians call the communion of the saints. Mm. So I think in order really to answer this question, we have to give it a, a reflection or we have to take a little tour, if you will, through the stages of the human drama. Mm -hmm. Uh, John Paul II speaks of the three stages of original man, historical man, and eschatological man. Big word. Big word. Uh, When I'm at a parish giving a TOB talk, I'll just use the words our origin, our history, and our destiny. Right. So eschatological man, that means our ultimate destiny, the eschaton. So we, right here and now, are in... The middle stage, which is historical man, Mm -hmm. which is the stage of fallen and redeemed man. Why do we 
wear clothes in this fallen world. Let's, let's abstract for a moment from the elements. We're in Pennsylvania right now recording this in wintertime, so it's cold, so the thought of being naked outside is not a fun one. No, not at uh, all. But let's abstract from that for a moment, and we have to go back to Genesis and reflect on why were they naked without shame in the beginning, and why is the first result of original sin covering the body? We have to do all this to answer this question. Okay. So in the beginning... They were naked without shame. John Paul II says this is actually the key for understanding God's original plan for our humanity. Wow. So this is no side issue. This is the key. Mm. So let's use this key and see what we can unlock here. Seeing one another naked without shame, John Paul II says, demonstrates that they saw as God sees. God looked at everything he made and said, behold, it is very good. And what they saw in their nakedness was the revelation of this glorious plan of love. Mm. A man's body makes no sense by itself. A woman's body makes no sense by itself. Seen in light of each other, we see this call to holy communion. Nakedness without shame in the beginning demonstrates that they experienced eros, erotic longing and desire, as the desire to love as God loves. So in the beginning, eros expressed agape, erotic love expressed divine love. And there is no shame in that perfect love. Perfect love casts out all fear, and shame is the result of fear. Mm. So the entrance of shame after original sin, notice the connection with fear. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Here is the moment, we could say, that Eros runs out of wine. Eros runs out of agape. Wine is a biblical symbol of God's love poured out. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, to go with that imagery, they were drunk on God's wine. And being drunk on divine love, there was no shame in their experience of their bodies and their sexuality. Sounds beautiful. Oh, Mercy, God, this is what we long for. We long, let's just try to uh, step away from the kind of heady theology for a moment and and just look at our own hearts. Deep, deep, deep in every human heart is the desire to see and be seen, Mm -hmm. to, to know and be known without fear, without hiding, that the, the naked humanity that is me at my deepest level, and here we're not even talking about physical nakedness. We're talking about something much deeper. The, the physical nakedness was a sign of a much deeper interior nakedness. And so John Paul II speaks of original nakedness revealing what he calls the peace of the interior gaze. So you know as a woman, you know as my wife, you know, yeah, just as a woman in general, the difference between when a guy, or even I, in my broken humanity, when I'm merely looking at you and when I'm seeing you. Maybe as a woman you could speak into that a little bit more. What's the difference between when a man sees you and when a man's just looking at you? Yeah, that is a big difference. And seeing has to do with knowing me, knowing my unique person. It's not really possible to be truly seen 
by a stranger. They have to have some knowledge of me. But I think in the beginning, there was a, a connection that we don't experience now that seeing and looking at weren't two, really weren't two different options. Things. They, yeah. so that's right, because they didn't, they, they, they had that piece of the interior mm -hmm. gaze. They were able to see. When, when original sin happened, we all went blind. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they covered their bodies is the indication that now they're merely looking. I think this really relates to our question because the, the possibility of being looked at, of being compared, of being thought about apart from the expression of a unique person, a unique gift, is what's threatening, is what's uncomfortable, is right. what's a problem in our world. This is the problem in the fallen world. Jesus sums it up when he says, they look, but they do not see. And the invitation of the gospel, right at the start of the gospel of John, Jesus says, come and become one who sees. Mm -hmm. So if, if the result of original sin is that we go blind, we don't see one another rightly, uh, the invitation of the gospel makes sense here. Come and become one who sees. So why do we cover our bodies in a fallen world? This is so important. We, we do not cover our bodies because they're bad. That is not why we cover our bodies, because our bodies are not bad. That is a lie. The fundamental goodness of all of creation remains. God looked at everything he made and said, behold, it's very good. And this is why we cover our bodies in a fallen world. We cover them because they're so good. And we feel an instinctive need to protect the goodness and dignity of our bodies from being degraded, from being treated as something rather than as the revelation of someone. Mm -hmm. And, and this, this idea of wanting to be seen, it's the same as saying wanting to be known as someone, wanting to be treated as someone, not treated as something. So all that groundwork needed to be laid to get to an answer to this question. Mm -hmm. uh, can you reread that yes. question? Because I want to make sure I'm addressing the yes, particular absolutely. points. So we said ultimate, and maybe ultimate isn't the right word, but if right. our goal is to be able to look at one another without any sense of sin or lust, why is there such an emphasis on dressing modestly? Shouldn't we be focused on developing the ability to see one another as people rather than objects? Modesty, again, is not some shameful covering of the body because the body is shameful, right? No, the body is not shameful. What is shameful is the way we look at the body. Mm -hmm. And here, here we have to be very, very careful uh, not to fall into the Manichaean error. What is Manichaeism? It's a heresy that says spirit good, body bad. Mm -hmm. And it blames the body for our own lusts. We must assign evil only where it is, and evil is never on the body itself. In other words, here's an example. The problem with pornography is not that it shows naked bodies. The Sistine Chapel shows naked bodies. Mm -hmm. The problem with pornography is the manner in which it shows the naked body. Mm -hmm. It portrays the naked body as something rather than as someone. A historical man is fallen and redeemed. And here we live in the tension of the already but not yet of redemption. We are already redeemed. This means we can, if we take up our cross every day 
and, and journey in, on the interior road of inner purification, which is long and difficult, we can gain more and more eyes to see more and more clearly. But we, we're not in the eschaton yet. We're not at our destiny. Yeah. So between here and heaven, we will always need to protect the body from the degradation of lust. Always. We're not in heaven yet. We're not there yet. We're not totally purified yet. And so covering the body, and this is the proper place of modesty, we, the very word modesty often gets connected to some Manichaean, fearful, puritanical thing. And we're not talking about that. We're talking about a veiling of the goodness of the body so that the goodness of the body doesn't get degraded. That's what we're talking about. That will always be needed on planet Earth until Christ comes again and we're fully purified. And, you know, sometimes we could wonder, well, will we have clothing in heaven? Well, we don't know. The saints, the mystics who've caught some glimpse of the resurrection, they were asked, you know, were they wearing clothing? And they said, well, I didn't even think to wonder. If they were wearing clothing, the purpose was not to conceal, but to reveal the mystery of the person. And if they weren't wearing clothing, it wasn't a big deal at all because they were just shining with the glory of God, and that's what I saw. But we're not there yet. So here on planet Earth, a proper veiling of the body will be necessary, not because the body itself is shameful, but because lust is shameful. And lust will always be a part of our a struggle here on planet Earth. But to the point of the question, I do want to proclaim this from the rooftops. We, we will struggle. We'll always feel that tension. We're never going to be perfect here. But we can, as St. Paul says, the power of redemption at work in us is far greater than we think or imagine. And so I want to say to all the listeners out there, there is another way to see the body than the prism of lust. There is another way to understand our sexuality than the prism of lust. And if we put the emphasis there, I think it's the right place to put the emphasis, that we really can come to see the body more and more clearly. But on planet Earth, we're never going to be perfect. And let's just assume someone has reached an advanced degree of purity here. Guess what? Lots of others have not. Right. So we always have to protect the body. But here again, uh, I'll, I'll address this Manichaean error. Next time somebody knocks on your door and you're in a state of undress, do not say, hold on, let me get a bathrobe. I'm indecent. You're not. You're not indecent because you, there you would be assigning the indecency where? To your own body. To your own body. And it's not your own body that is indecent. What might be indecent is the way someone is looking <laughs> at your body. So what you should say is not, let me get a bathrobe, I'm indecent, but rather, hold on, let me get a bathrobe, because the way you might look at my very decent humanity might be Indecent. Indecent. Right. There we're signing, we're, there we are assigning the evil where it is due, I not at the body. We'll have to practice that response a few times so it'll just roll off our tongues in that <laughs> sudden situation, right. okay? Yeah, let's practice that. <laughs> Thanks for the question, too. Yes. That was a good one. This is a question from Ryan. He says, I'm a youth minister. How do I convince youth that are mentally stuck in the sin of impurity understand and live out the church's teaching on sexuality. And by stuck, I mean 
totally unmoved after three weeks of talks and discussions with a respected and effective clergy member. So we're getting a little background mm-hmm, to where he's mm-hmm, coming from with mm-hmm. this question. I think his youth have been presented with a lot of compelling information, but they are just stuck. Obviously, the operative word here is stuck. And mm-hmm. I love the way my wife pronounces CK at the end of the word. So could you just say that word stuck one oh, more sure. time? Stuck. Ooh, I love. This is kind of like related to the cracking of the egg yeah. thing that we talked about in episode one. Yeah. I, love, I love the way my wife pronounces yes, our, CK words. Our kids are very used to their father asking me to say that again. Oh, could you just say that again? And I always know what word he wanted me to so say So one more again. time, one more time. Stuck. Oh, there it is. Thank you. Love it. Okay, so moving right along. Yes, God bless you, Ryan. I, I, I can relate to the quandary. And I, I'm, I'm thinking here of the scripture verse. I believe it's right out of the mouth of Jesus. Yes, it is, where he says, uh, some demons can only be cast out through prayer and fasting. And I don't, I'm not trying to be alarmist here, but there are, there is a real spiritual battle going on here. It is no mere coincidence, as I often say, that uh, this is quite profound, that Ephesians chapter 6 follows Ephesians chapter 5. Stupid jokes aside, what am I getting at? In Ephesians chapter 5, we learn the ultimate purpose, beauty, and splendor of human sexuality, where St. Paul says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he says, this is a great mystery, and it refers to Christ and the church. Pause right there. Pause right there. We are created male and female. We are called to become one flesh. That whole mystery of our sexuality, the whole glory of of husband and wife in that powerful, powerful current of erotic longing and desire, giving their lives to one another so intimately that they become one body. This is a great mystery that reveals, proclaims, and enables us to participate Mm. in the eternal exchange of Christ's love for the church. And that takes us up into the eternal exchange of the Trinity. This is absolutely astounding. John Paul II called that passage in Ephesians 5, the summary of the entire Bible. It's everything God wants to tell us. It's all summed up there in a certain sense, he says. And here's the summary of the whole Bible. God wants to marry us. But here's the problem. There's an enemy that does not want us to know this about ourselves. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. But the opposite is also true. The impure shall not see God. And this is why the enemy's after us right here. And here I'm back to my stupid joke, which isn't so stupid. It's quite profound, the point I'm trying to make. Right after St. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 the meaning of our sexuality, in Ephesians 6 he says, you want to live what I was just telling you about? Get ready for a war. Get ready for a battle. And we have to put on the armor of God to win this battle. And the first piece of armor that St. Paul says we have to put on, Wendy, do you know it? Gird your loins with the truth. Gird your loins with 
the truth. I hope everybody knows what your loins are, and I hope they are girded with the truth. Mm. Uh, what am I doing here, Ryan? I'm trying to paint the picture for you of the battle that you are engaging in. As St. John Paul II told us, the whole mystery of human sexuality, the whole mystery of the two being called to become one flesh and form the family, that's what sexuality is aimed at. It's aimed at forming a family. He says, this brings us to the center of the great battle between good and evil, between life and death, between love and all that is opposed to love. I have learned that this battle is real the hard way. I remember when I used to, well, when I began teaching courses for the Theology of the Body Institute 15 years ago, we would try to go to certain places in the classroom, and, and it, it, it's not an exaggeration to say some, some hellish things mm. were happening, some spiritual attacks, some, some disruptions of a dark spiritual nature were occurring. And I realized after teaching two classes and experiencing this repeatedly that I am never going to teach a class again unless there is a prayer team uh, praying in front of the Blessed Sacrament while mm. I'm teaching. Yeah. And you remember, Wendy, when we, when we first did that, it was, it was a huge difference. It just enabled us and enabled me as a teacher to, to go much deeper in the class, in the classroom without disturbance, and it enabled the students to go much deeper and to be released from certain places where they were stuck. Yeah. So, Ryan... Here's my suggestion. I do not doubt that really good teaching was delivered to your, to your youth group, but I think you're encountering, when you use that word, say it again, Wendy. Stuck. <laughs> when, you, when, you, when you're encountering being stuck, as my wife beautifully says, I think you're, you're getting stuck or the students are getting stuck because of the spiritual warfare. The next time you give some teaching in this area, I would encourage you to gather a prayer team together to be praying in front of the Blessed Sacrament, and I'll bet you it'll go much, much better, and that the prayer team themselves would be interceding specifically that the spirits of impurity be cast out. See, they have a specific goal, to keep us blind. Yes. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall... See God. Blessed, not well, not blessed, but... Darkened. Darkened, darkened are wounded. those who, who, who are impure because they can't see. They can't mm. see. Mm-hmm. We got to take seriously the spiritual warfare. And when we do, we can trust God is at work, but merely intellectual formation is not going to save us. We have to engage it fully at the level of the heart and with all the tools of spiritual combat in Ephesians chapter 6. I hope that's a little help to you, Ryan something that we also experienced together in a similar way with engaged couples was that as a group, they may have appeared totally uninterested or unresponsive to hearing truth proclaimed. But sometimes That's true, Wendy. That's true. a couple privately mm-hmm. would approach us and thank us and say, you know, they were really um, thinking about things in a new way, and they were grateful. That's true. And I think even more for teens than engaged couples, it's very hard for them to step out from what the group is yes. manifesting. Yes. And so they may be even less likely to tell you that they're thinking, that they're 
their eyes have been opened. So I just want to encourage you that it's very difficult for youth to express some of those things, but seeds are going into their hearts. That's an excellent point. Yeah, and and you brought up that point. Seeds are going into their heart. Trust that, Ryan. When the truth goes out, it does not come back empty. I remember uh, when I was a teenager seeds that a certain religion teacher I had planted, and I was my heart was so hardened, I didn't want to hear any of it. Right. But seeds got planted that later in my life sprouted. So trust in that, my brother. Mm-hmm. God bless you in this important work you're doing. Yes, God bless you. I have another question for you. Great. This is a question from Veronica, and she says, when we talk about Catholic saints, it's common to hear them described as virgins. But I've noticed that we only ever describe female saints as virgins. To a modern woman like myself, frankly, that comes off as creepy and sexist. If we value virginity, why do we only brag on female virgins and not male ones? Great question, Veronica. And I love that you're wrestling with it. Gosh, I I would need to, to go into a whole dissertation on the church's teaching on virginity and what it really means to give an adequate response to the question. I can only give you some food for thought, but Veronica, I want to I want to point you in this direction. You know, words often get connected with meanings that are not what they really mean. Uh, s- certainly here when the church speaks of virginity, we we can often have a, a sexist, uh, puritanical connotations connected with those words, fearful of sexuality, um, those attitudes that we connect with these words that are not what the church intends by virginity. And in order to give you a little direction to go down, some food for thought, I want to point to the Virgin of Virgins, right? The Blessed Virgin. If we can understand Mary's virginity as a true and deep, profound affirmation of the most glorious truth of our sexuality, rather than some kind of puritanical negation or fearful rejection of the mystery of our sexuality. If we can start there, then that light, the light shining through Mary's virginity, will color everything in its its proper way. So I'm going to just give you a little reflection there. Mary's virginity is the sign, as St. John Paul II said, that she is betrothed to love eternal. Virginity, in this sense, is not a negation of God's plan for sexuality, but an affirmation of the deepest truth and meaning of God's plan. And here we need to understand what the church means by the sacramentality of our bodies and the sacramentality of our sexuality and the sacramentality of marriage itself, the joining of the two in one flesh. Why sacrament? What makes marriage a sacrament? What makes the union of man and woman in one flesh a sacrament? Well, sacraments are earthly signs of heavenly realities. There are no sacraments in heaven. Why are there no sacraments in heaven? because sacraments lose their raison d'etre, they lose their reason for being. The purpose of a sacrament is to give us an earthly participation Mm -hmm. in the heavenly reality. 
Scripture begins with the marriage of man and woman, but it ends... With the marriage of the Lamb. Right, the marriage of the Lamb, Christ and the church. Marriage is a sacrament. In fact, it's the primordial sacrament. That means, this is the language of John Paul II, the primordial sacrament. That means it's the original, fundamental sign in all of creation of our destiny. Where are we headed? Our destiny is union with God forever. Union with God forever. This is our destiny. This is why Jesus says, in the resurrection, we're no longer given in marriage. Why? Because you no longer need a sign to point you to heaven when you're in heaven. When you're in heaven, you're there. You don't need the sign to point you there when you're there. Imagine that your destiny is, I don't know, uh, Disney World, and you're driving down the highway and you're seeing all these signs for Disney World, and, and you told the kids in the back seat, hey, we're there, and you pull over to the sign of Disney World, and you say, we've arrived. Um, not really. <laughs> not really. You're at the sign. This is the sign that's pointing you to Disney World. The union of man and woman is the sign that points us to the eternal union of Christ and the church, God and humanity. Virginity in the language of the church, in the understanding of the church, is, is saying to the whole world, what our destiny is. It's not sexual union. Sexual union is the sign. Those who remain virginal for the sake of the kingdom, those who say, I'm not going to engage in sexual relations because of the kingdom, they're not saying sex is bad. They're not saying sex is unholy. They're not saying sex is only for those who aren't strong enough to be uh, virginal or celibate. They're saying, no, 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 no. The union of man and woman is a beautiful, wonderful thing but it's only a sign of something far greater. So Mary's virginity is not a negation of sexuality. It is the living out of the ultimate purpose and meaning of sexuality. Perfect union with God. Virginity, a virginal union, put it that way, is not a negation of something. It's the perfection of something. So Mary's virginity is not a negation of sexuality. It is the living out of the ultimate purpose and meaning of it, which is union with God. And notice here that it's a fruitful union. Mary bore the most glorious fruit, which is the Son of God himself. Here, Mary's virginity becomes the light that illuminates the very purpose and meaning of sexuality. Uh, For example, the reason Mary didn't have sexual relations with Joseph is not because sex is bad or dirty or evil. Rather, Mary is already living, even in the here and now, the ultimate union with God. If she had had sexual relations with Joseph, it would have been a step backwards. Instead, she reaches her hand out to Joseph and says, Joseph, come with me. Come forward with me. Mary is already participating, even in time, somehow, she's already participating in the eternal union with God. And she's saying, Joseph, let me show you something even better than than sexual union. I'm going to take you into the mystical union. I'm going to take you into the mystical nuptials of heaven and earth. This vision is what illuminates what the church means by 
virginity. And if we can let that, Veronica, sink in, if we can let that vision inform and transform the way we understand that word, it will remove the creep factor and it will lead you to the glory factor. Wow. It will lead you to the splendor and beauty and destiny of every human being, which is eternal, fruitful union with God. All of that, that plan, God wants to marry us. This is God's plan. But not only does he want to marry us, he wants to fill his bride with eternal life. Mary's virginal union with God led to the fulfillment of this marital plan. She literally conceived eternal life in her womb. That is the light that illuminates what virginity is truly in the mind of the church. I think I'm going to share something that I don't know if you know about me, love, but uh, wow. when I was little, I think the first way I heard the word virgin was in reference to Mary. Mary was the blessed virgin. Right. I just didn't have any other meaning for the word virgin in my mind except in a sense of awe for Mary, mm. awe for her beauty and her holiness. And when I first kind of heard a, a very offhanded explanation of what it means to be a virgin, I thought my initial reaction was, that's not right, because it didn't contain that awe. Wow. As you're talking, I'm thinking back about that, how it first struck me as a child, it was so connected with this reverence and um, specialness of Mary. I don't know, I just feel like it was a contrast in my heart to hear it in this kind of simple mechanistic explanation yeah. versus something that is awe-inspiring. I like that word to capture the wrong connotation, the mechanistic mm -hmm. understanding yeah. of virginity. I think that's a good, a good word to use here. This is the church's understanding of virginity is anything but mechanistic. Right. It's, it's actually mystical. Right. And it points us to the eternal mystical nuptials that every human being is destined for in union with God forever. So I think that's about all the time we have for questions on this episode. Yeah. If anybody out there has a question that you would like Wendy and me to address on the show, please go to askchristopherwest.com or you can just do a review. If you, We would love it, actually, if you guys would do a review of our show. You can put a question in your review. Put a question right in the review. Tell us what you like. If you really like us, we would love it. If you could give us a five-star review on iTunes, that would help us a lot. Don't do it if you don't mean it. That's right. Honesty here. <laughs> we hope you love what we're doing. You can also, in the comments, offer any suggestions. We are here to serve you guys any way that we can improve this show for, for your listening pleasure. We would love to hear about that. Show notes you can also find at AskChristopherWest.com. And I'm inviting you to take a free course. If you haven't already signed up for that free course, please join in in what everybody is learning about these beautiful themes that we're just touching on in the podcast, you can learn more by taking this free course mm -hmm. at askchristopherwest.com forward slash free course. Until next time, God bless. God bless you. The Ask Christopher West podcast comes to you from the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione and production by Sounder and Key.
We're in Pennsylvania right now, recording this in wintertime. So it's cold, so the thought of being naked outside is not a fun one. I do feel a little exposed. Okay, 